Good morning. Um, Hear now from the word of the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Najeb and go into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. At the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. They told him, we came to the land to see to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and, it is, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jesuits and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quietened the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. And together we say, The grass withers and the flower flays, but the word of God will stand forever. Would you remain standing for a moment longer as we dedicate this time to the Lord in prayer? Father, uh, we come with uh, hearts filled with joy. Um, Some of us, uh, some of us come with heavy hearts. Some of us are distracted. Uh, Some of us um, are not sure how to feel. But we would invite you to come search us out, prepare our hearts, make our hearts fertile soil for your word to be planted deeply so that we could see you, that our quest for truth, beauty, and goodness would find its home in you, in your son. And so may this time be to that end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, Well, good morning again. Uh, If you're new, so we're in the middle of a sermon series where we've been studying the writings of Moses. Now, if you grew up in the church, you might know a little bit about Genesis, maybe a little bit more about uh, Exodus. But for the most part, like the evangelical church, we've largely ignored Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so this sermon series is kind of our attempt to right the ship 
mostly because those sections of the Bible, although mysterious and quite complicated, they're just as much a part of the Bible as John 3.16. And so what we've, we've seen so far, we studied uh, Leviticus, which helped us understand how an unholy people can have a relationship with a holy God. And then uh, last week, we started in the book of Numbers, in chapter 1 with the census. And we've learned that the book of Numbers is a travel log of Israel as they wandered the Sinai Peninsula. If you'll remember, we said that life in the desert is where the good and the hard coexist and reside together. And sadly for Israel, they, um, they forget who they are when they're in the desert. And they, they fall into these like self-destructive behaviors. And, and one of the main issues that we're going to learn today is that they don't know how to trust God. I mean, they know they should, but they don't know how to trust God. And so let me sort of begin in my introduction with an illustration that will kind of help you understand what's at stake. Uh, many of you have probably seen the movie The Hunt for Red October. It came out in 1990, so if this is a spoiler, it's not my fault. That was like 31 years ago, okay? Uh, so the basic plot is that the Russians have developed a super stealth nuclear submarine. And this technology would allow the Russians to park right outside of Washington, D.C. and, uh, you know, undetected and rain nukes on uh, American cities, right? Uh, but a Russian submarine naval captain, his name's Marco Ramius, he's played by none other than Sean Connery, right? He, he gets a conscience, and he and his crew decide to defect and hand over the submarine to the Americans. So a few Americans have to board their submarine in order to bring them in and to kind of finish the transaction. So three Americans board this sub. These three guys are American Naval Commander Bart Mancuso, Jim Ryan, who is a CIA analyst, played by the young and skinny Alec Baldwin, and then, of course, a third is Seaman Jones, who is a sonar specialist. So as they're in route to the United States, they're engaged by another Russian sub, and a torpedo is launched at them. And so Seaman Jones, a specialist, he says, Commander, the torpedo is at 1,000 meters and closing fast. Now, at this point, everyone takes their position, and even Jack Ryan, he sits. Now, Jack Ryan... He's not in the Navy. He's just an analyst that has studied the Russian Captain Ramius for years. But he never spent a day in a submarine. Nevertheless, he sits down at one of the sub's positions. So Captain Marco Ramius looks at Jack Ryan and he says, Set the course heading of the sub to 315. And so he's like, hey, I'm not in the Navy. I'm just an analyst. And he says, just do it. Ramius barks at him, right? Now, at this point, the American commander, Bart Mancuso, he's alarmed. He says, don't do that. And Jack Ryan's like, why, why, why not? And Mancuso says, you're heading straight into the path of the uh, torpedo. At this point, Seaman Jones repeats, he pipes up, sir, 500 meters and closing really fast. And Captain Ramius, Captain Ramius reports, set it for 315. So Jack Ryan looks at the American sub-commander, and then he looks at the Russian naval captain, and he sets it 
for 315. And the submarine turns right into the torpedo, and the torpedo hits the hull of the sub, and it disintegrates with no explosion. Now Jack Ryan's puzzled. He goes, what happened? Combat tactics, Mancuso says with relief. See, the captain knew that if he turned into the torpedo, he would close the distance and hit the torpedo before the torpedo armed itself. Now, the question is this. Why would a U.S. CIA analyst trust a Russian naval captain instead of a U.S. captain? And here's the answer. As an analyst, Jack Ryan was an expert on Marco Ramius. He felt like he knew him. He had studied this man for years. He really knew Marco Ramius, so much so that he was willing to trust him to do something that went against every intuition in him. And that is the heart of what we're going to learn, is trusting against every intuition. That's what Numbers 13 is about. We just heard the story of the 12 spies who went on a mission to collect intelligence in the promised land. And when these 12 spies returned, 10 spies were rethinking God's words, while two spies were even more sure that God knew what he was doing. But listen, the story in Numbers 13, it's not just about them, is it? It's about us. See, through this ancient story, we're going to learn about two different strands of trust. Trust in self, or mistrust, or trust in God. And that's going to be our two points outlined for this morning. Let's begin with trust in self, or mistrust. Now, um, many of you guys know this about me. I'm a, Texas, a Texan kid, right? I'm from Texas. And even if you don't know that, you can probably detect a little bit of hick in the voice every once in a while. Um, I love Texas. Microphone go in and out? It is, right? All right. Um, I don't know what to do about that. Um, it's fine. I'll just chill out. All right, here we go. Because uh, I'll be loud either way. Um, but I love Texas, but, you know, Texans are a little bit nuts. Uh, one time I traveled to Dallas. I got out of the plane, and I see a PETA shirt, a PETA. And I thought, you know, it's a little bit out of place for Texas for the occasion. But then I read carefully, and it said, people eating tasty animals. And I thought, of course that would be born in Texas. So they're a little bit, um, uh, they're a little bit quirky, and uh, I am afraid to admit that um, although I left Texas when I was 18 years old, I still have a little bit of Texas blood in me, right? You've heard the saying, right? Y'all know the saying, you can take the boy out of Texas, but you can't take Texas out of the boy, right? Well, I could say the exact same thing about Israel, Right? You can take Israel out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of Israel. Egypt was a place where they were slaves. They had lived there for 400 years, and the Israelites that we had just heard in Numbers 13 in the story, they're the very first generation to come out of slavery. That's who this audience is. So these guys still spoke with Egyptian accents, right? They were learning how to give up their Egyptian gods and learning to trust in the one true God. But still they trusted in God the same way that they trusted in their Egyptian deities. See, listen, Egyptian gods were not real. They didn't exist. 
So trust in Egyptian gods was really a pretext for mistrust or self-trust. And let me show you how that's illustrated and exemplified in the story. Uh, in, in our text, it begins in verse 1. God orders Moses to send out a representative from each tribe, making it 12, to go on a reconnaissance mission. Now notice that God, in verse 1, says uh, what he's doing. It says, look there in your Bibles, "...send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel." So this land will be given to Israel. It is promised. So this mission is not to decide if the land is worth it, if it'll be theirs. No, God has already given this land. So there's 12 spies going to collect intel, and there's two areas of focus. They are to report on the quality of the land, and they are to report on the quality of the people who live in the land. Now remember, the promised land. It's prime real estate, right? It's not vacant. It's filled with some pretty rough and tough people. And so the spies go, and when they report, when they come back and report, it's kind of a, it's kind of a mixed, there's no consensus. It's a mixed report. Ten of the spies speak as if God's promise to give them the promised land came out of the mouth of one of their Egyptian gods, right? right? In verse 27, the first ten give their report. It's good. Milk and honey. No one is lactose intolerant, so they're pretty pumped about it, right? Jason, uh, right? I'm kidding. All right, land, right? Milk and honey just means that the land is good for, for farming and ranching. So the land was everything God said it would be. But then, verse 28, they give the second part of the report, and they talk about their occupiers. The occupiers. They say, listen, everyone, the land is good, but it's not that good because the people in the land lift a lot of weights. They're big, and they're good at building really thick walls. If we go in there, we're all going to get slaughtered. And when they compared their own muscles and the fortifications uh, of the promised land over against their own, they concluded, we don't have the chops to go up against these guys. Look there in verse 31. They say, we're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. What's happening here? Why is there so much mistrust? I mean, why, like, why would they speak like this? It's because they trust God the same way that they trusted their Egyptian deities. They're accustomed to trusting Egyptian gods, and what that really meant was that they were used to trusting themselves. In verse 27, the first words out of their mouth to Moses are, look there, verse 27, we came to the land to which you sent us. Now that is a really ominous thing to say. When you're reading the text, you're supposed to be like, what? I mean, because like, are these guys crazy? Like Moses didn't send them. Moses don't got no land to give anybody. God sent them. And that's how the story begins in verse 1. God sends but do you know why they didn't have any courage? It's because although they said that they believed in God, who they really believed in was themselves. And because that is true, when it came time to be courageous, they couldn't get there. In fact, it made them anxious. They thought the only person who could be trusted to take care of them is themselves. Number one, got to look out for yourself. 
There's also a second aspect to their mistrust. They had a therapeutic vision of God. See, they thought the Lord was like the Egyptian gods in that they believed that the whole point of having gods was so that the people could do a little bit of work, right, for their deity, and then the deity in return would make their life easy. Like, that's the deal. But listen, God never says that that's what, what those are the terms of the relationship. Like, he never says that following him would be a piece of cake. The whole point of the rescue mission was not to decide if they should do the mission, but to make a plan on how to obey because it's actually going to be pretty challenging. It's going to be hard. See, God is not trying to spare us from hard things. Now, now if you're seeing a parallel with the story to your life, or if you're not seeing it, you're not, paying a, you're not listening closely. You're not paying enough attention. See, because here's the thing. Is we all believe in God. We believe in Jesus. But do, do you know who we trust in? We trust in ourselves. And we think that God exists to make our life easy, to make sure that we don't have to suffer. And so when our life is not easy... It reinforces the narrative that we have to trust ourselves. And we, we got to look out for number one because God's not going to do it. And you know why this is so tragic? Because we are terrible gods. Terrible gods. And when we put our trust in ourselves, two things happen. First, just like the ten spies, we become paralyzed and riddled with anxiety. We're, we're chronically anxious and your whole life turns into this exercise of self-protection. Like, that's what, you, that's what you're trying to do, just self-protect. And two, you never do anything courageous or take risks. Nothing great in this world happens when your life is about your life. Are you following me? When your life is about your life, when your life is about self-preservation, you will be super suspicious with God, maybe even mutinous. And when God calls you to do something hard, something that's out of your comfort zone, you'll rationalize according to your own limited reconnaissance and intelligence, and you'll opt out of really following God. Listen, God's commands and promises they weren't blind. They weren't just blind directions. He called them to do recon. But the recon was not there to determine whether or not they were going to obey God. It was so that they, that they would accompany God into hard things with skill, you see. Listen, you guys, Christians have always been known for doing hard things and walking with God in those hard things. We've always been known for accomplishing hard and courageous things for God's glory. And the confidence of faithful Christians in history was not in their own skill. It was in God. What does your life, when you assess it, when you say, what am I about? What does your life reveal about who you trust? I mean, I know that you believe in Jesus, do you trust him? Or have you placed your trust in yourself? I've done more wrong things than right things in my life, 
but of the few right things I have done, none of them have been easy, and they're the things that I'm most proud of because that's where I see God working. I'm sure this is true of you. It's in that, those moments that our trust in God is actually nourished. And I'm sad when modern Christians have adopted this certain therapeutic vision of God such that when hard things happen, we think God was the problem. And we start this mutiny against God. And, and, Christian, and Christian walks are blah. We're so status quo. There's this call here in this text to, to let go of our false gods to let go of our self-trust. And we're going to think more about this as we go. Let me continue in our study because it's going to continue to develop. So first we look, point one, in our self-trust. Should I, should I change it? Would that be helpful? Uh-huh. All right. Sorry about that. All right, here we go. Right at the second point. Here we go. How are we doing? All right. Uh, let's turn our attention to that. We looked at the 10. Let's look at the two spies, uh, Joshua and Caleb, who did trust in the Lord. Um, so you guys know this because I have a thousand stories and illustrations from, from it, but I went to the Air Force Academy just south here. When I went to basic cadet tra- training, I was given this small book, and this small book is called Contrails. And the book is just filled with tons of information, and every dually, that's what they call freshmen, is required to memorize every word in that book. Now, of this massive body of information, there are tons of quotes. One of the shorter quotes uh, that I memorized was by General George C. Marshall. And he says this. I, I remember these words even all these years later. He says, There is no limit to the good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. I like that quote. He's trying to say, don't don't just do things to get glory. Now, in the story that we are studying this morning in uh, Numbers 13, it takes that sentiment even further. Essentially, we see a couple of guys, Joshua and Caleb, say, oh, we absolutely care about who gets the glory but it's definitely not us. We're going to do something so undeniably crazy so as to ensure that only God can get the credit for this. We're going to attempt the impossible, and everyone will say, oh, the God of Israel is the only one and true God. See, after the 10 spies give their report, I mean, the people get into this frenzy. And I mean, it's like they're losing their minds. In chapter 14, we actually see even more about what happens. People say, hey, Moses, like I'm totally done. The chains in Egypt, they look good. Let's go back there. That's what happens in the next chapter. It's bad. Those people lost their minds. But after the initial report in verse 30, like Caleb, he kind of, he like takes the mic, right? Uh, and he, uh, he, he says, um, well, notice, he, he does not, when you look there in verse 30, he doesn't deny or try to minimize the reality of the toughness of the occupiers that are in the land. He didn't say, oh, come on, guys. You know, it's like, not that big of a deal. Like, we've been working out. No, he, like, he doesn't say that, right? What he says is, yes, it's bad. Let's totally go up once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Now, it's significant that he doesn't go into, like, la-la dreamland. He doesn't deny the reports. 
In other words, Israel's taking the promised land will have nothing to do with the strength of their army. What will people say? They'll say, this is so impossible that God has to be the one who does it. Only he will get the credit. Now, everyone else is freaking out, but Caleb and Joshua thought to themselves, this is so hopeful. Like, that's what they're thinking. They're like, this is so hopeful. God is going to get, like, so much credit. When I was in Paris uh, two years ago, uh, the front, you, you read about this guy. Uh, he's a French marshal, Ferdinand Folk. He's a famous general of World War I. He says, he says there are no hopeless situations. There are only men and women who have grown hopeless about them. These two spies, they didn't grow hopeless. Why? Because they were never trusting in themselves to begin with. It wasn't a, that wasn't their starting point. Now, there's one feature that really alerted Caleb and Joshua. Part of the intelligence collecting mission included doing an assessment on the lay of the land. So look at verse 17. They're told to evaluate if the people are strong or weak, or if they are few or many, or whether their cities, the, the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds. Now think about this. Israel lived in tents, and those ten were hoping to see that the rest of the world also lived in tents. But when they encountered, what they encountered were these walls and cities with these walls around these cities that are so thick that two chariots could ride side by side on top of the walls, right? And you'll actually see something like that in Jericho, uh, you know, in the book of Joshua. So while the ten freak out, Caleb and Joshua look at the walls that are totally thick, Two chariots on top of them, and they're so encouraged. <laughs> like, what? Like, why? Why? Here's why. If you have thick walls, it's, it's, because, it's not because you're secure. It's because you're insecure with your gods. Like, your gods can't be relied upon. You got to do something about it yourself. All right, you following the logic? See, this whole narrative in, in Numbers 13 is not a comparison between competing armies. It is a comparison between competing gods. Israel lived in tents, totally exposed, but they were safe and they were secure because their God protected them. They didn't need walls, but these big bullies who lift a lot of weights, they need all of the protection that they can get because their gods would not pull through for them, you see. They needed to take matters into their own hands. So Caleb and Joshua saw the walls, these really seemingly impossible obstacles, and they grew like more and more confident. Hey, are y'all listening? <laughs> like, are y'all listening to this text? It's crazy because this has like everything to do with us. Because we're not like, dead prepares, we're not interested in being a church that just keeps the status quo. We're not interested in just keeping the status quo so that we can all live respectable and comfortable and dignified lives, all baptized in religious jargon. Like, we're just not interested in that. We're begging the Lord to do something here in Denver that is so big that all of us are going to sit back and say, that sounds impossible. Like, we could, totally, we could never do that. 
We could never touch every single Denverite with the hope of the gospel. Like we could never create webs of relationships that are so expansive that addictions could be broken forever and divorce rates plummet. Like we could never have our children so steeped in the gospel so that they go to schools that make Jesus look silly and trite and see incredible revival break out. We could never go into a city that is so stinking racially divided that there would be this profound healing and reconciliation that breaks breaks through the diversity with this profound unity in Christ. Like it's crazy to talk like that. None of this is like remotely possible. Let's totally do it. Like, let's do it. I mean, like, right? Let's do it. There's no doubt that God is our Lord. Like, he's working in our midst. We don't need walls. We need the Lord. I want you to believe that. All right. Let me just summarize in case you've zoned out. Let me summarize and conclude, and this is where we'll end it. So this ancient story in this book of Numbers that we barely read gives us a case study on how to trust. Israel trusted God in the same way that they trusted their Egyptian gods. And since Egyptian gods aren't real, it really meant that they trusted themselves. But then there were these two spies, Caleb and Joshua. They were different. They trusted in the one true God. They didn't expect God to make things easy in their life. That's not the point. In fact, they expected everything that they were supposed to do to be impossible. And they knew that there would be costs. But when they saw the walls, they saw insecurity behind the muscles of those occupiers. And when they looked at their own tents, they thought, ah, clearly God is for us. Clearly, let's do this. And so there's two ways of trusting. Trusting the Lord or trusting yourself. And my deepest prayer for this community, for my own children, is that we all would relinquish trust in ourselves, shed the anxiety, rest in God's promises like Israel was called to do. We're not gonna explode into mutiny every time something gets hard or doesn't go our way. God's not protecting us from hard things. He's doing great things through the hard. That's how he's always done things. That is how he has always done things. Do you need proof? God the Father had given God the Son, Jesus, marching orders for an impossible mission. He was to live and die on a cross for his people. And this is so hard. Like, this is so hard that on the night that he's betrayed, Jesus literally sweats blood. This is hard. But Jesus trusted his father perfectly. He trusted perfectly. And where did that get him? It got him hanging on a cross, and he died. Should he not have trusted his father? He trusted. It was hard, and there was a cost But his death, and this is what Christians believe, brought about a victory of such cosmic proportions that we could spend all of eternity talking about and we still would not get to the end of the matter. With trust, through death, 
God brought an impossible victory. And you and I are the beneficiaries. Jesus has given us a track record of faithfulness. And I want you to know this Jesus. I want you to meditate on him. I want you to read about him in his word. I want you to pray to him desperately. I want your imagination to be baptized by that beauty. Because one day, someone's going to holler at you and say, Hey, a torpedo is coming 500 meters out and it is closing fast. And Jesus is going to say, set the course for three, one, five. And it's going to feel suicidal. And your culture will say you're crazy. But you will set it for 315 and see really beautiful things happen. God will do marvelous things in and through you and through this community. Amen.